again, it wasn't problematic, but it escalated through my 20s, continued to escalate through my 30s. And by the time I was in my early 40s and my kids were teenagers and things were shifting, my career was quite a heavy load. There was just a lot. And wine was my off button. You know, you go 500 miles an hour a day, all day, and everyone says you're doing great and you get all these accolades. And so it seems okay to go home and drink in order to take the pressure off from the day and then to fall asleep so that you can get up and do it again. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast, episode 103. My name is Janet Goron. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last six years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week, we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. I know that. uh, That's why this uh, WhatsApp group has been so amazing, because sometimes I do just sit and read people's stories and think, shit, that's me, that's me, that's me. So it kind of... uh, um, like even with the, the the WhatsApp group, I never posted anything, but it took me so long because every time I wanted to post something, I'm like, Ugh, it's none of anyone's business. And <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and once I posted and people were talking and it's like, oh, okay, it's yeah. fine. You know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, those are the starts that I've had. And, and, and So if you want to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. If you've been sober for a while and you're ever tempted to drink just one glass of wine, then it's worth remembering this well-known saying. You can change a cucumber into a pickle, but you can't turn a pickle back into a cucumber. In other words, once we've crossed that line into alcohol dependence, there's no going back. We must just go forward and create a life we don't want to escape from. My guest this week is Jean McCarthy. Jean was obviously inspired by the pickle analogy as her blog is called Unpickled. And I'm sure many of you have listened to her awesome podcast called The Bubble Hour, which has been going for almost a decade now. I began by asking Jean to introduce herself. I'm Jean McCarthy. I'm from Alberta, Canada. For listeners who don't know where that is, if you remember the Winter Olympics that were in Calgary in the 80s, I'm not too, too far away from there. So I'm in the part of the world that has four distinct seasons a year. And that means I get to have a lot of fun skiing in the winter. I ski almost every weekend. I spend summer in the woods, in in lake country. And I just live in a part of the world that is very connected to nature. For most of my life, I was too busy hustling for my worthiness to appreciate that, but that's really what my life has um, landed at, at at this stage in life. So I'm 54. I've been married to, believe this or not, my high school sweetheart, who I met in 1984 when we were teenagers. Luckily for us, that worked out. I'm not sure I recommend it for everyone, but we've been married for 30 some years and we have three adult sons and three daughter-in-laws and three grandsons and a life that's just really full and happy. And I am showing up for it every day. So as a woman in recovery, I've been sober for um, coming up on 11 years and I'm so grateful for it because I have this big, beautiful life that I am fully engaged in 
and always ready for. Yeah, that that's so true, Jean. Because as you know very well, when when we're sober, we're present to appreciate and enjoy our life. Whereas if we're drinking, like like we used to drink, it can just pass you by. Yeah. <laughs> so well, and that was the just, point, right? I mean, because life yeah. felt unmanageable, yeah. and it was yeah. a coping skill. So yeah, it took yeah. it takes some tinkering to get to where you can enjoy it, and it's not terrifying yes. to be sober. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to Anne Dows at Johnston there for a podcast that's coming out on Saturday. And, you know, she she was telling me that she particularly found that first year really tough. You know, she said it is not for the faint hearted. And I know what she means. But it's so worth pushing through, isn't it? Because the, the other side is uh, is far more than we ever expected it to be, I think. That's true. So let's uh, let's dive back into your drinking story, shall we, Jean? Were, were you a teenage drinker? How did it all start? It started, yes, as a teenager. I'm the, I'm the youngest of three kids. And I think when you're the youngest in a family, you observe what the older ones are doing, and then you kind of try to level up, right? At least that's how it was for me. I was a very good mimic. Uh, nobody had patience for a little sister tagging along, so I had to act as grown up as I could. So to me, I never thought about being authentically me. I just thought about how to act a way that seemed acceptable. And so by the time I got to be 13, I felt very grown up. So I acted very grown up. I drank and I was never good at it. I drank to um, have fun and to get drunk. I look back on it now and I think I was not comfortable with myself. So I was drinking to be more comfortable or to be different than I was right from the beginning. But at the time, it felt good. It felt like a relief. It felt like fun and I could be silly and I was excited. Like, what was going to happen? You know, like, was, would there be boys there? I was absolutely boy crazy because all of my self worth came from other people. As my teenage years kind of unrolled, that was a bit of a recipe for disaster, right? You end up putting yourself in situations that are regrettable. And so then you have additional shame and then it, you know, it just kind of spiraled. But I, I think I was a, a teenager who looked like I had it a lot more together than I really did. And I looked 40 when I was 15, at least I thought I did. I could get into bars. And so then that was additional trouble, right? Because what 15-year-old has the emotional maturity to be drinking in bars with adult men who have no idea that this is a child? It was all meant to be in good fun. And looking back, there was problems, but I didn't identify it as problematic at the time. And it didn't catch up with me. Really wasn't until I, um, like I said, I met my husband young, got married, went to university, we started a family out of school. Like I did all the, I checked all the boxes, everything was good. And it was, but it was busy and it was hard. And I didn't particularly like myself. So there was the opening, right? Where the wine mom uh, pattern started to happen. Again, it wasn't problematic, but it escalated through my 20s, continued to escalate through my 30s. And by the time I was in my early 40s and my kids were teenagers and things were shifting, my career was quite a heavy load. There was just a lot. And wine was my off button. You know, you go 500 miles an hour a day, all day, and everyone says you're doing great and you get all these accolades. And so it seems okay to go home and drink in order to take the pressure off from the day and then to fall asleep so that you can get up and do it again. And yeah. the sad part is that it works for a very yeah. short yeah. bit of time. It works well enough to trick you into thinking that this is sustainable, manageable, and good. And then as the natural trajectory of addiction to alcohol takes over, you start to drink more and more as the years go on, right? Because I was drinking before bed, there wasn't a lot of consequences. You know, I wasn't drinking and driving. I wasn't drinking at work. But what was happening, what was a bedtime glass of wine became an evening, couple glasses of wine became dinner, evening, <laughs> became walking in the door from work and pouring a drink. And then, you know, towards the end, it was a case of every morning waking up and saying, I'm not going to drink today. And by lunchtime, thinking, I absolutely have to drink today. Absolutely. <laughs> There's, yeah. I can't not drink today. You know, something good happened. Something bad happened. Um, something might happen. There was, th that shift would occur. And it, it was the fact that it was getting earlier and earlier and earlier in the day where I thought, oh, this is getting scary. 
haven't had consequences yet, but if this keeps going, like I am going to be the person with the bottle in her desk. No shame on anyone listening who is or was that person. That's what happens with alcohol. That's, that's addiction. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah. And what age were you when you thought, I've got to do something about this? Oh, boy. That voice was there early. Even in university, actually, I remember feeling like when I drank, it, it wasn't good. Yeah. But I, I knew like not drinking wasn't an issue. I just thought I, I, there was something wrong with me. I would say it was probably in my 30s when I was starting to notice that I was wanting to drink less, but only drinking more. That was kind of a huh moment. And I went through all that thing that people do of trying to put parameters on it and then <laughs> the rules. chucking. Yeah, the rules that you, you know, make and abandon within hours. But I would say I was 43 when I quit. I would say probably for the five years before I quit. It was a loud voice and it was, you know, every day. Yeah. I think many of us have that voice for, for years, but uh, we just mm -hmm. don't know how to go about it, really. We, we feel so stuck and then it's just easier to, to have another drink. And I don't know if you know that study by The Tempest. I thought it was really interesting. It's quite recent. And they asked 250 people in recovery, how long was it between the moment when you knew you had a problem with alcohol and the moment that you reached out for help? And it was 11 years. That's, that's pretty average because we all got, I was uh, trying to moderate for a decade because I couldn't imagine not drinking. So mm -hmm. that in a way is a contemplation stage, isn't it? It's a bargaining mm -hmm. stage. We're negotiating with ourselves, trying the rules. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, I, I just couldn't imagine life without alcohol. So I was trying everything. But if I could give someone advice now, you know, I'd say just don't bother with all that. Just stop, you know, and it's going to be hard for a few months, probably a year. And then you have a different life, you know, whereas mm -hmm. spending 11 years moderating and failing and feeling terrible about yourself just doesn't make sense. I, I heard you saying actually on a podcast that you were waiting for a sign I yeah. to ask you, did you ever get that sign? <laughs> I did. I did. I, I was under the impression that rock bottom was essential. Like, I think that was a misunderstanding that kept a lot of us drinking for that decade. And I'm hoping that the noise we're making now by telling stories and holding space for others uh, helps to dispel that myth. There doesn't have to be a rock bottom. So I was very fearful of rock bottom and I was really hoping for the, uh, you know, deus ex machina, is that the term? Or, you know, the machine that's going to come in and boop, pull me out of my own story and save me from myself because I was terrified of rock bottom. Um, what's it going to be, you know? And so the sign that I got, I, I don't know if it came from within myself or out of myself because I am at a stage in life where I'm a little more agnostic than I used to be. And I'm not feeling as, you know, um, devoted to spiritual views that I used to have, or that used to feel really true to me. So I, sometimes I wonder if it came from inside of me or outside of me, but either way, it was without my control. I was at an event, a work event, and my work persona was very important to me. It was, it was like a, a mask that was me was was what I thought was me or was hiding the real me. So I was very, very invested in um, how other people saw me professionally. And so here I was at a table uh, at, a, at a function with a bunch of women, and I was hosting this table, there was wine on the table. And I had this epiphany of, uh, it felt like a hand or a board came out of the ceiling and smacked me on the chest. And I heard the words, I need to quit drinking. And I gasped, like, <gasps> like, I kind of remember looking around to see if anyone else heard it, saw it, if it if it was in any way. I almost felt like, oh my God, did I just shout that? Like, does everybody, was this a public thing I just did? And of course, when we're drinking, we're always so fearful of losing control. I looked around, I thought, nope, nobody noticed. And you know what, just carry on, you know, ignore your instincts like you always do, Jean. Like, just devote yourself to... Uh, the busyness of life, get moved past your instincts. And then I felt it again. I need to quit drinking. And it felt like 
I had this persistent feeling in my chest that I describe it this way, that if you saw a puppy wandering onto a freeway, you would gasp and like move, right? Or if your child was moving towards danger, you, you, before you even think you kind of move towards it to save it. And I felt like I had like a cartoon, like leapt towards uh, this, this thing in danger, which was me, but I had to other it in order to make it make sense to me. Um, and then was suspended in mid animation, animation, like that, that feeling of, oh my goodness, like doom um, action, uh, that feeling in your chest that something has to happen that just came and stayed. So maybe that was a God shot. Maybe that was a miracle. Maybe that was the self-combustion of a million little epiphanies that I had ignored for a decade. But whatever it was, it didn't go away for a couple of days. And I kept drinking to try to get rid of it. But thank God it stayed because I realized this is my chance. This is my shot. I can leverage this and finally quit for good or change this for good. So that was the day. Yeah. And how did you do it? Did you do the 12 steps? No, I didn't. I was terrified of going to a meeting because I live in a city that's about 100,000 people. And as a business owner and a kind of a a very public um, person, you know, I was kind of the face of our business. I had so much shame for this secret life. I had, I was successful and I just felt like, Uh, And this is wrong, by the way. I mean, this is not right, but I didn't know it at the time. I felt like I couldn't go to a meeting. Like everyone would know who I was. And my fear, it was it's this two-sided shame thing. Like I was partly afraid of showing people my truth, my shame. But a bigger fear for me about going to a meeting was that the people there would be so much worse than me that they would say, Are you kidding? You don't need to be here. You're fine. You're managing. You know, you don't, you're, you're not blocking out. You haven't crashed your car. You haven't hit rock bottom. You don't belong here. Now, now I know that they would never say that. They would never say that. But I was so sure that I had to quit drinking, which I did. I was fearful of death. I felt like I felt I had this awareness that the path I was on was going to first ruin my life and then kill me because that's where it takes you. And I, so I didn't want that. And I was fearful of anybody talking me out of quitting. So I didn't tell anyone except for one friend. I went for a walk with a friend two days after I carried this fire in my chest for two days. I went for a walk with a friend and I said, I have to tell you a secret. I have been drinking every night for decades and I can't stop and I'm afraid and I I need to stop. I really think I like I really think I have to totally quit. Like I think I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> the word. <laughs> the word. And you know, it was partly telling another person because I was so disconnected from myself that nothing was real if someone else didn't experience it. I had no regard for my own reality. It just when you're in denial all the time, you think something isn't true unless someone else witnesses it. And so for me, we'll talk about this later maybe, but recovery has been recovering myself, recovering my value for myself, which is beyond my wildest dreams of what quitting drinking would ever offer me. I did not know that was possible. So that act of telling another person was huge. And um, then it made me accountable to somebody. I chose the right person to tell because she was quiet and she said, I had no idea. You would never guess that you're carrying this and it must be awful. Makes me sad just remembering that because it was so special to hear. It was what I needed. I I needed that validation. Yeah. Yeah. And so she said, I can see why you want to do this and I think you should. And that was that was all I needed. So yeah. that was the first thing I did. And then um, the second thing I did, and this is like the simplest thing, but the most important, I quit drinking. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I up until then, all the times I tried to quit drinking, I somehow mm, I was trying to do it without quitting drinking. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, I, I really, I really quit. And, and how? I mean, was it hard? 
Oh, it was agonizing. It, it I was crawling out of my skin. I didn't realize it was dangerous to to quit cold turkey. So, um, luckily for me, I didn't have any significant um, repercussions that way. But I did quit cold turkey, and I set up a whole bunch of little things for myself in the evening. So I felt like every three minutes, my cravings were like a toddler yanking on my sleeve, you know, can I drink now? I want to drink now. And so I had oranges. And if I wanted a drink, I would go and I would um, eat a few little slices of an orange. I had ice cream, little ice cream treats in the fridge. I would go and get an ice cream. I would walk my dog around the block. I just, every time I felt that need to have a drink, I just gave myself something else. And then I figured out very quickly this wonderful thing that if you don't start drinking at three or four in the afternoon, you can actually drive in the evenings. So I would hop in my car and go, you know, to the store and just wander around the store and then, you know, maybe pick up like new socks or new pajamas or just something to comfort myself or busy myself or maybe the groceries for the next day. I mean, I was realizing really quickly, oh my gosh, like I have all this time. So then the next day was easier because as a busy mom and a working mom, oh, well now I have groceries in the house that, you know, now I don't have to fit that into tomorrow because I did it today. Uh, What really, really locked it in for me was after a day or two, I started feeling physical withdrawals. You know, I felt shaky and fluey and I had never quit long enough to actually have withdrawals because your cravings are your initial withdrawals symptoms. So if you give into your cravings, you're really just um, holding off withdrawal. So I'd never gotten to that point before. And once I experienced that, that was brought home to me the reality that I really was physically addicted and that if I stayed the course, I wouldn't have to go back again. And then uh, final thing I did, I started a blog on the first yeah. day and it was anonymous because I was secretive and fearful. I remember day day one was about three lines. <laughs> yeah, day one. I think I wrote like, this is my first day, that, you know, stay tuned, this should be interesting. And it's not because I thought I was particularly interesting. It's because I didn't know what to write. I just, it was kind of a placeholder, like, uh, how am I doing this? You know, step, this step, this step. And then it was like, write your first post. And I was like, uh, I don't know, I'll just write blah, 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 and then go to the next step and see what happens. I did not think anyone would read this blog. I I didn't fully understand how blogging worked and I didn't really read blogs, but I'd heard about blogging and I I um helped um with the website for our business. So I knew you could see the stats when someone looked at your website. So I thought, you know, if I just see like one click on my website, then again, external validation, I'm accountable to one person even if I don't know who they are, even if it's a bot from who knows where. It'll it'll help to motivate me. And what I thought was maybe I could diarize my experience for a few weeks and that after a few months, I might have enough material to maybe create an article or something that might be interesting. And then I could tell, um, maybe write an article about this really fascinating thing where, gosh, like I must be really different because I have it so together except for alcohol. So I thought the world might be really interested in this extremely unusual story of a high-performing alcoholic. And then, (laughs) you know, of course, within a few days, the comments on the blog were like, oh, I'm just like you. I'm just like you. And I thought, oh, I'm not unusual at all. This is normal. And then that helped to propel me because, A, I didn't expect the feedback and it was so helpful and wonderful. Connection is key. Yeah. And then, and then B, because I really, it got me out of that delusional thinking that I was special and different and unusual. The beauty of that is that someone else has already figured this out and you can just, they can help. So you were, you were building a community there via your blog, I'm sure. And you had followers, so you didn't want to let them down by uh, falling off the wagon. And I'm sure you responded to them sometimes and encouraged them. And and that's when the magic starts, isn't it? You stop feeling so alone and Mm -hmm. so broken. You realize you just got addicted to an addictive substance. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and that's all you it did. was such a relief. And I, I didn't know that was going to happen. So again, lucky me, I, I accidentally did something that really worked. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love your little examples of, you know, eating a bit of orange and going to the store because you could drive. Who knew? 
and uh, yeah, in a way, you had a, a distraction list, didn't you? You need yeah. you need a list of little things like when you think, "Oh my god," and then you think, "Oh, I'll go and do that. <laughs> I'll try that tonight." Yeah, yes. And then I think later on, what I learned and what I tell people now is that your your cravings, the reason you drink, is because you're uncomfortable. So yeah. conjure up a million little comforts to replace that, and. Over time, you forget, the longer you're addicted to alcohol, the more you forget all the other ways that you can comfort yourself and meet your own needs. And you have to relearn all of that and you get to rediscover what you like. I mean, I didn't even particularly like alcohol. I just wanted comfort. So now I have better ways. Yeah, I think that's part of the magic of sobriety because we we start to appreciate everyday pleasures again, don't we? Because yeah. uh, when we're really hooked on on booze, all we care about is uh, you know events that will involve wine or being with people that want to drink just like us. But suddenly when we make this space because we stop drinking, it, it's quite scary at first, but then we realize it's a kind of freedom to explore, isn't it? It's a, a journey of self-discovery, I think. Um, it is. Sobriety yeah. is. And it's and, a surprising uh, relief. It was such a relief to drop the mask and tell people, uh, connect with other people in recovery yeah. because they didn't care about the mask. Like they, right. the mask is the last thing they care about. And I mean, I might be a big deal or I might have thought I was a big deal here in my hometown, but when I'm connecting with you on the other side of the world, you don't care. You don't, you know, you just, you care about this honest conversation we're having. Yeah. And then I feared it so much. I had no idea how good it would feel. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all about the power of vulnerability, isn't it? You know, yeah. the, the recovery, um, community is is so real and so different. I mean, I, I like he was in a professional with the mask and everything had to be perfect. And it's, it's so good when you can just finally be yourself. So I know it's a long time ago, Jean, because you've been sober for more than a decade. But do you remember that first year? Was it Was it really tough for you? Did you have any relapses? What was it like? The first year, actually, the first two years were... Um, I would say I was coping. I was sober and I I did a bit of therapy and that really helped. But by and large, I think I wasn't fully, like I wasn't experiencing the fullness of recovery. I was really just white knuckling it. I stayed sober by attaching so much shame to relapse that I wouldn't allow myself to, to relapse. I think I have a much gentler perspective now. And I think that kept me sober, but it didn't so much let me heal, right? Because shame is its own problem, even when you can leverage it. I did get through the first few years. And the the trick through that is that it's all those sober firsts, right? The first conference you go to without alcohol, the first wedding, the first, um, you know, sober sex, sober this, sober that, like there's so many firsts and you're figuring it out. And if you don't have a community... I didn't have like those sort of real time supports that social media and um, communities like yours are offering people now. So that would have been extremely helpful. I was just kind of getting through it on my own and muddling through. And I think because uh, I have a lot of natural supports in life in general, like I think something um, like secure income, secure employment. I mean, I was self-employed, so I wasn't going to lose my job over my drinking. Um, And some people, you know, if you're in sales, it's tough to be a salesperson who doesn't drink. So some of those obstacles, I I was in control of some of the things in my life that, that other people, I think, find quite challenging. But it was hard. I did not relapse. But I think I had relapsed so many times by stopping and starting and stopping and starting beforehand that this time when I really quit, I quit for good. One thing that helped me was that my dad was sober my whole life. So he, before he was even married, had really struggled with alcohol as a young man. And he was uh, in the Air Force in the 1950s, this would have been. And he was told like, you can quit drinking or you can quit flying. What's it going to be? So he went to AA and he quit drinking. And he was very matter of fact about it. He didn't stay active in AA. So I didn't see what recovery looked like through him. But I grew up with a non-drinker. And he, from the time we were little, he would say, oh, well, I don't drink because, you know, once you're an alcoholic, if you quit drinking, it's forever. So that was like a reality that I understood. 
that once I got out over the hurdle of accepting that I ha- I was addicted and the 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 term that's not a medical term it's not even a real word but alcoholic like once I accepted myself as an alcoholic then I it, by just natural progression my brain then accepted that that meant I cannot drink and so I didn't but so it sounds uh, as if you you kind of white knuckled it almost for the first couple of years I in did. in recovery yeah. when, when mm-hmm. did you start to relax and uh, and discover the magic really well, I was uh, had stumbled upon and don't ask me how this little podcast called the Bubble Hour, which was oh. uh, three ladies from uh, the uh, other side of my continent. So they, uh, I'm in Canada. They're in the U.S. I'm in the West. They were on the East Coast in Boston, and uh, I was going for long walks with my dog and listening to these women discuss recovery. And they had interviewed uh, a Canadian woman by the name of Don Nickel, who's amazing, the founder of She Recovers. And uh, she, her voice just really hit home for me because she's very warm and wise. And I think everyone that hears Dawn talk feels like they know her and she's telling their story. And she was talking about doing these retreats for women in recovery. And I thought this woman sounds, you know, safe and practical, and I feel like I trust her. So I went on one of these retreats. And then that was the first time. Two years sober, I sat in my first sharing circle. I, I, I sat in person with other sober people and talked about it. And I basically bawled all seven days. I was probably not a lot of fun on that trip. But it exploded my recovery. And then yeah. that's, when I, that's when I started connecting with other people. And just it lit up my life in ways I... It's it's so wonderful to connect, and then um, shortly after that, then I joined the Bubble Hour. Actually, it was right at the same time that the Bubble Hour had a, a vacancy, and um, because I was blogging, and I also used to do quite a lot of media work for my job, so I just sent them a message on a whim and said, "Hey, I you know I know you're short-handed. I can help out. I'm in Canada, but you know I'm glad to help out if I can. Here's my skill set." And then, uh, as it turned out, uh, they did they they. It, it was a time of transition for the podcast, and they really did need help. And so then I got involved there, and yeah, recovery just looked, you know all caps recovery just like it washed over me like a tidal wave. All the yeah. all the things started pouring in. Yeah, I love this um, the story of that uh, retreat really because there you were seven days of crying, <laughs> yeah. and that took you took you from one side to the other, didn't it? You got right through yeah. to the magic then, and then the bubble hour, and obviously talking to people a lot, you know. And it's uh, I mean I, I'm sober uh, nearly seven years, and I've I've done uh, nothing like the bubble hour, but I've done nearly a hundred podcasts now, and I find that every time I talk to someone, you know, like like you today, I get inspired all over again and, and I learn new things. You know, there's there's so much to discover, isn't there, with the science behind it and the psychology. It's, uh, you know, I feel like I'm ready for my PhD soon. <laughs> I know, it's, uh, me too. And I, the thing I love about it too is that the person who's on day two has just as much useful, insightful information to share with you as the person with 30 years of sobriety. I mean, that's what I love is how there's no hierarchy. There's no, um, there's no, how, what would you call it? Status even Mm. that, um, that, that we all just by, just by holding space for each other and speaking honestly about the things that make those other people really uncomfortable. You know, you can't talk like this at work or no. on the bus. <laughs> it's not small or talk. There's no small party. Talk. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it it's so healing and growing. And, you know, at the stage that you're at, where I'm at, probably what the tools we're gathering aren't how am I going to stay sober today? Like that part we've got. It's it's more what what can I heal? What can I grow so that I can sustain this? Because it does need constant tending, I find. Not in that you're constantly stressed by it. It becomes a joy to, yeah. to maintain this life because it is yeah. so full. Yeah. I mean, it's a journey of growth, isn't it? And the fact that yeah. when we drink, we're numbing our feelings. And then, you know, when we're sober, they all bubble up to the surface. And it's only by dealing with difficult feelings that that we grow and learn how to manage all that, isn't it? 
I don't Absolutely. know if you ever heard that that lovely podcast with Oprah Winfrey and Lennon Doyle, the, the easy button that uh, Lennon Doyle was calling alcohol. And it's the easy yeah. button because it just enables you to bypass your feelings. Yeah. Uh, but it's yeah. the pause button. That's what I learned too. It's yeah. a pause yeah. button, right? Yeah. It doesn't, you don't bypass your feelings. You you hold them That's a and then they, they back up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's twice as hard the next day. I had a lady the other day and she said, uh, I can't stop crying. And she said, I, I was crying at a cookery show just now. <laughs> so, you know, just crying for absolutely no reason at all. But, you know, it needs to come out like, like yeah. you and your Yeah, and like you're, you're feeling your feelings for the first time. And uh, I was in therapy session uh, early on and she had, she had asked me something difficult and I said, oh, I don't want to go there. Like, I don't want to start crying. And she said, why not? We have time. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, if I start, I'll never stop. And she <laughs> said, that's, that is physically impossible. Like, you're, you're, you physically cannot cry for more than, I don't know, like 21 minutes. And we've got 40 <laughs> minutes left. So you've got actually time to cry and redo your makeup. So this is a great time. Let's go. And then... I just thought, God, I had so much fear about it. I, I honestly, in my head, the visual I had was that my my bones would turn to liquid and I would just like become a puddle on the floor if I ever released my emotions. And once you learn that like, oh, it's just temporary and it's not that bad and it yeah. feels better. And also then, you know what? Eventually you're going to start feeling the laughter and feel silly and feel happy. And those things are not numbed either. Yeah. So yeah. you get to feel the good stuff. Absolutely. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. So that's one huge benefit of sobriety for you, uh, the, the feelings. What, what other things would you, uh, if you had to explain to someone why you're so much happier now than you were 15 years ago, what other benefits would you, you pick on? I think um, the, probably the word that most resonates for me is that I'm authentic. And I really was drinking to cope with the discomfort of living inauthentically. And I didn't think I was worthy of being authentic. So the emotional feeling helped me to, to feel worthy that my authentic, if I was brave enough to be authentic, that would be enough. That would be safe and okay. And so now that I live that way, it's just so much more comfortable. And I'm a better friend. I'm a better wife. I'm a better mom. I'm a grandma now, so I am like there for my grandkids in a way that I'm so proud of. It's convenient. Here's the other thing. This is just a real pragmatic benefit of being sober. Drinking was a management problem. You know, you am I am I sober enough to drive? When am I going to get my alcohol? How am I going to get my alcohol? Now, how am I how am I not going to let anybody know how much I want this alcohol? Oh, a friend's coming over. Great. I only have enough for myself tonight, and I have to share with her. Like. How am I going to get through that? You know, now I'm going to have to drink my husband's scotch after he goes to bed so that I can get enough. Like it was always such a management problem. And it's just simple. I mean, yeah. I don't have all of that to deal with. Yeah, that, that's then, a great benefit, Jean, because I, I know exactly what you mean, just the energy that we spend holding it all together. And the lovely thing is when we get sober, we've got all that energy to spend on much more productive uh, things, haven't we? Absolutely. Yes. And I've always been a creative person. So it, when I was actively drinking, I was doing um, performing as a songwriter in addition to my job and kids and everything else. I don't do that anymore, but being sober has given me time to write the novel I always wanted to write. I've released a couple books about recovery and there's more coming. That is time you know, that I, I couldn't have had before. I was using all that time drinking. So just practically, there's just more abundance of everything. And then there's physical benefit. Alcohol is a carcinogen, yeah. plain and simple. And you are putting it in direct contact with your entire digestive system, right? So esophageal cancer, stomach cancer, bladder cancer, 
then for us women, there's breast cancer. There's, I think, seven types of cancer that are yeah. directly associated with alcohol. Last week here in Canada, there was a news story that some doctors are calling for warning labels on alcohol the same yeah. way that they're on cigarettes. I so, saw that this morning. One of our Canadian members sent it to me. It's, it's very good. Yeah. Powerful. Yeah, yeah. Powerful. I've shared it everywhere. <laughs> And then I, uh, I as a, I'm maturing, you know, I went through menopause. That was much easier without alcohol messing up my hormones. Um, so that was really good. And then I th just think that uh, it's uh, I'm more hydrated, you know. So I think I yeah. it's I'm just aging better without the dehydration of alcohol, and as well as like the sleep interruptions and all that stuff that that alcohol was causing. And then uh, I recently I got. Um, a little bit of injections in my lips. And uh, I know, and I, I'm not, um, I'm not a, a super glamorous look. But anyway, I, I was trying this out. And uh, the in, the nurse that was doing it was telling me how great it is that I don't drink because what injections are, you know, they're not silicone, what it is, it's hyaluronic acid that pulls more moisture to itself. And that's what plumps up. Uh, your lips or your cheeks or your whatever, wherever you're putting it, that's what plumps it up. So that if you're not drinking, you're not so dehydrated, your body is, you know, naturally got lots of hydration, so that things like that really work. So I pictured myself had I still been drinking, I would have had more aging uh, on my face that I would be trying to battle. And yet I would be uh, undoing the positive effects of, of those types of treatments just as fast as I was doing them. So yeah, the uh, hydration thing's very interesting. I read just the other day that for every glass of wine that we drink, we lose four glasses of water, the equivalent of from our bodies. So imagine, oh, I mean, really? I was on at least a bottle of wine a night, so I must have been so dehydrated. Mm -hmm. I, I say to people that uh, giving up the drink is is the, the best thing that you can do as you get older, isn't it? I mean, we spend all this money, you know, on beauty products and injections and all sorts of things. But then if we're drinking as well, you know, it's, it's all a bit pointless. Yeah, it's true. That is so true. So if anyone's listening to this gene and they know that they've got to stop, you know, the functioning alcoholics just like we were and they're holding it all together but they're absolutely exhausted and sick of it and they know that they've got to do something but they just don't know how to start what, what would you advise them with all your decade of, of knowledge now <laughs> i my advice would be first of all be kind to yourself be gentle with yourself you're not alone and um it's 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 going to be okay. So get over the mental hurdle of like, this is a disaster and my life is going to be awful without alcohol. It's actually a life of abundance is what you embark on when you give up alcohol. So if you can possibly see that light at the end of the tunnel, or even just hear me say that people a little bit farther down this road are having that experience. So even if you can't believe it's true for you or it is true, it's going to be true. It's true for other people. So hold that in your heart as hope that in order to get alcohol free, you actually have to quit drinking. You have to quit drinking completely. And none is easier than some. That's the simple thing that I learned. Uh, if, you've, if you have been struggling trying to cut back and trying to manage alcohol, and it's been really, really hard, and you think that quitting drinking is going to be even harder, it's actually simpler, in my opinion. Definitely. Right? Like I agree. One and yeah. done. How, how mm -hmm. do you moderate an addictive substance? You know, people yeah, don't moderate it, heroin or cocaine, do they? It, yes. And your brain is really invested in maintaining the status quo. So your brain's going to work for a little while at first, convincing you that you need to drink, that alcohol is, is essential, because you've trained your brain that way. So it takes a while to retrain it that it's not, right? So you have to, you're going to have to manage that voice. You're going to have to manage that part of yourself that has forgotten how to comfort yourself and that is deeply, deeply invested in keeping the alcohol coming and keeping the status quo. So develop some other comforts, you know, um, have snacks, have, a, have baths, have activities, get yourself through all of those those needs to comfort for the first few days and be really clear with yourself that drinking is not going to be a tool that you're going to use to comfort. Um, tell someone, 
you know, tell the truth if, if that's helpful or, or if there's someone, uh, you know, close to you um, that, that you can tell, that's good. If you can connect with a group and you can connect with the group. I mean, they exist. There's tons. So join your group, join an online group, go to an in-person meeting in your community. Don't be afraid of that. Um, it doesn't, you'll probably, first of all, be surprised when you walk in, like how welcoming and warm it is. It's not scary. And it, just go and observe. You know, you're, you're welcome to go and observe. If it doesn't feel like a fit, try a different meeting. There's more than one program. You know, we talked about AA um, that that I didn't use that program. Actually, now I do drop into women's meetings and they know that I didn't get sober through the 12 steps and that I don't work the 12 steps, but they welcome me anyway to share and to be supportive as a person in recovery. I honor their path. They honor mine. And to be together is wonderful. So connecting in person is just so, so, so good. Yeah, and it is so wonderful that we we have all these online groups these days. Because when I got sober seven years ago, there were here in South Africa there was nothing, and I didn't really know about the online groups. I think there were maybe one or two at that time, but now you know that there's so many, and there's all the alcohol-free drinks as well, which help. And I don't know if you've discovered it yet, but there's a magazine for sober people now. Ola yes. Sober, we found Yes, it. Ola Sober is wonderful. And they, they kindly wrote a little bit about me uh, this summer. They did an article. So I uh, met that group through through participating in that. And it is absolutely beautiful. I mean, I know. it really makes you realize you are part of this beautiful movement yeah. to be a person in recovery. Yeah, we have, we have resources like never yeah. before. I mean, lucky absolutely. us living in the information age. Yeah, yeah, it's a sober revolution, and we're part of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Amazing. I heard someone. I heard someone in in our group the other day, and she said um, we were on a, a Zoom meeting, and somebody was saying, "Oh, you know, my drinking problem." And the, this lady said to her, "Well, well, actually, because this lady's a few years sober now," she said, "You don't have a problem; you have an opportunity." And I thought. What a great way to reframe it because we've both yeah. seen we've had an opportunity to change our lives in ways we didn't even imagine. So that's, yes. that's a nice bit of reframing, isn't it? I love it. So let's talk about Unpickled. As I was telling you before we press the record, I used to um, read that when I was in contemplation. I was still moderating and falling on and off the wagon and used to read it. And you've got a decade of it now. It's tracking your your journey. It's it's a fantastic tool for people to to read and use. And uh, they can just um, Google Unpickled and it'll come up, I think, won't it? So yeah. that's, that's something that I'll put in the show notes. And the Bubble Hour, I know that lots of our community listen to that anyway. I mean, it's... Um, what have you got? Four million downloads so far. Yes. Uh, yeah, we incredible. had four million earlier this year. So now we're <laughs> 4.2 million, I think, already. It's well, crazy. Congratulations. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. So you deserve it. You've, you've been at it consistently. And that's that's the answer, isn't it? I think. And you've it had is. fabulous guests. And now you're being a fabulous guest. So it's all good. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. Let's talk about your poetry. So how did that all start? The poetry started, um, gosh, how did it start? So I, as I mentioned, I was a performing songwriter in, in the past. I've, I'm a creative person and a, a writer. And uh, I couldn't, I, I gave up performing as a musician because of the pressure of being a solo um, artist it was just recovery helped me to quit doing the things that weren't serving me very well. And that was one of those things. But I still continue to write and really, uh, my, son, my son said to me at one point, I took it as an insult at the time that, you know, folk music is just poetry with guitar behind it. And I thought, yeah, what's wrong with that? And then uh, after I wasn't doing music anymore, I thought, well, you know, I could just, if I take the, the music and the performing part away, I can continue 
writing and creating poetry. And what I learned when uh, Mary Oliver died, I realized so many people in the recovery community were sharing her poems that had helped them and had meant a lot to them. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know what? I never realized this could be a tool in people's toolbox. So maybe I can share some of these poems that I've been writing about myself and my experience uh, with the recovery community and, you know, put them together and kind of create a collection that could be one more tool in the toolbox. Because sometimes it's just a little phrase that someone says, you know, all those helpful little um, memes and, and sayings that are helpful in recovery. You know, perhaps these things I'm writing could contribute to that. And so I created a book out of the poems that I'd written. And I also did something interesting with that project. And I took the 12 steps, which I did not work to get sober, but in hearing so many people on the bubble hour talk about their journey, people that have used the 12 steps really uh, revere them. And they they talk about, you know, I did my step four and blah, blah, blah. And other people in the recovery community that are in 12 steps inherently understand what that means. They know what a step four is and all of the emotional stuff that goes with it. But the rest of us don't speak that language. So there's a section in my book where I took each of those steps and wrote a poem about it to help the rest of us understand what that experience is like and also to honor for those people that cherish those steps to pay homage to their experience. And um, so I, I think that that is something I hadn't seen anybody do before. And I've gotten really interesting feedback on that. People that didn't ever understand what the 12 steps were about now can see them a little bit differently. And I talked to one fellow who reluctantly read my book, uh, my poetry book. He said someone gave it to him and told him he had to read it. And so he did. And then he ended up loving it. And he said, the poem that I wrote about the the ninth step, which is making amends to people, he said he wanted to paint that on the wall of the rehab that he works at because it so well explained the process. Yeah. So that's that's the book. So the poetry book is called The Ember Ever There. It is um, just poems about recovery and about my journey, the, the hard parts, feeling lost, getting started, going through it. And then there's a section on connection about all the joys of connecting with other people. Oh, that's beautiful. And people can buy that on the Unpickled blog, I think I saw. They can. Actually, Amazon yeah. is probably the greatest Amazon. worldwide right. resource to, to okay. buy it. And you don't have to apologize to me as an author for buying it through Amazon because it's actually really great for me when you buy it on Amazon. Uh, then you get it the quickest and they're very fair to creators like myself. So that's a great awesome. resource to get it. Can we get it on Kindle? Yes, you can. Yes. Awesome. And I'll Apple get it Books. on Kindle. Yeah. Great. Okay, so you promised me two little poems, didn't you? One for somebody just starting and another mm -hmm. one for someone that's struggling in their sobriety, did you say? I did. I did promise you that. Let me share. This first poem that I'm going to share with you, I just released it on my blog. So you can go to Unpickled blog and you can download a copy of it. Uh, you can just capture it on your phone as a picture, or you can use it as a screensaver. I, I've put it on there as a PDF so that it can be saved and shared. And I released it for New Year's because there's always a lot of people that start their recovery journey in January. So I thought it was the perfect time. This poem is called The Pivot. Set it down. It doesn't serve you. Your arms are aching, cramped, and sore. You're so accustomed to this burden, believing less would hurt you more. Your true purpose is long forgotten, enmeshed unwilling to a bitter call, and fearing death or certain ruin, you've reached the point of stand or fall. This is your day. This is your moment. This is your life. This is your heart. Take back your freedom. Reclaim your strength. It's time to quit. It's time to start. Beautiful. Makes me emotional. Takes me back to day one. Yeah, yeah, uh, me too. So before we both start crying, let's have the next one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll go right to the next one. This poem is called Chairs in a Circle. A little bit of backstory on this. I actually wrote this on a retreat, a recovery retreat in Mexico. And in the evenings, we would sit around in a circle and we would have a sharing circle every night. And so this poem uh, I wrote about 
that experience of being in a sharing circle, whether it's in a meeting or just a group of sober friends having coffee or talking online, there's something about that space that is sacred and unusual. And I was trying to capture it. Uh, So this is called Chairs in a Circle. My dear recovery friends, I've been waiting for you. And you, it seems, have been waiting for me too. We've stepped into a place in each other's lives to fill an invisible gap, a void unknown before. We soothe an unrecognized irritation, like the noise that goes unnoticed until it stops and then suddenly, ah, that's better. Until we found this gap, this secret zone, we spent our lives filling in the obvious slots, the places reserved for parents and siblings and friends and neighbors, for lovers and children, for teachers and baristas and gynecologists. Our accountants know every penny. Our hairdressers see gray roots at the napes of our neck we can never reach on our own. We thought our lives were full because all the spaces were filled. What more could we possibly need? All the bases were covered. And then, then, we found ourselves in a new place, a place we came to heal ourselves, and we found each other. We see ourselves in every person here gathered for the same purpose, here to restore, here to reveal. We learn this thing called holding space, and harder still, we learn to be held. We've met in the gray area we didn't know existed, a place between ourselves and the world. Our circle has capacity for stunning revelation, a BS-free zone that welcomes brutal honesty and forgives imperfections, and yet does not require regular lunch dates, invitations to our children's weddings, or obligatory niceties that other close relationships demand. Sure, you'd take the afternoon off to meet for coffee if I asked, maybe even offer me your spare room for the night, and yet you'd never be offended if I was nearby and didn't call. Some days... Back in the land of black and white, when life is a grind and those around me assume I'm just fine, I might wonder if I imagined you. I will breathe deeply and remember it all and believe in myself again because you saw me and heard me and allowed me to be me and trusted me to do the same for you. I'll remember that we discovered the space in between, met there, and can return to it any time we need to. What matters to us is, are you okay? Do you have what you need to get through today? I know now I can turn to any of you and say, help. Please see me. Please remind me I can do this and tell me why I must. My loved ones can be the reason I choose with my mouth closed, but you, my recovery friends, are the reason I live with my heart open. Thank you for seeing me. Thank you for being a mirror that reminds me of who I am and all I can be. Thank you for your bravery, for stepping into the place that others can't acknowledge to honor your power and mine. I am grateful we've chosen to be here. So thanks, Jean. So many insights there. Let's pull out some key points. So Jean was a teenage drinker going to bars at 15 years old as she looked older. Then she got married and had her children young, got into the mummy juice culture, and her drinking escalated throughout her 20s and 30s. And by the time she got to her 40s, her children were teenagers, her career was demanding, and wine was her off switch. She went from one glass to two glasses to a few glasses to opening a bottle of wine the moment she got home from work. Like many of us, she'd wake up in the morning and think, I won't drink today, but by lunchtime that resolve had disappeared. Ever since her teenage years, Jean had an inkling that alcohol was not doing her any favours. And by her thirties, she was trying to make a change and setting the rules, which of course she promptly broke. She finally quit at the age of 43, which led us to discuss the Tempest study, the study that concluded that the average time it takes people from realising they had a problem to actually quitting was 11 years. 
And one of the things that kept Jean stuck in her drinking was that she was laboring under the misconception that one had to reach rock bottom before making a change. That's a myth that keeps many people from ditching the booze. That myth kept Jean from going to AA. Not only was she worried about being recognized, but she also felt that she wouldn't fit in, that she would be seen as a bit of a lightweight because she hadn't lost everything. So let's take a moment to debunk that rock-bottom fallacy once and for all. If your drinking is on your mind and you have a suspicion that you would be healthier and happier without it, then just do it. Always remember that even if alcohol doesn't destroy you, it will prevent you from reaching your potential. There's no need to keep digging your way to rock bottom. You can stop today. And there's never been a better time to give up drinking. There are so many online sobriety groups like Tribe Sober, not to mention a plethora of alcohol-free drinks. So go to tribesober.com and check us out if you'd like to meet other people who have decided to avoid rock bottom and ditch the booze before they get there. So Jean didn't go to AA, but she did confide in one friend, and that made all the difference. She got empathy from that friend, and it made her accountable. And sometimes just telling one person is all it takes. So if you're stuck, then that's a great place to start. And if you feel there's no one in your friendship circle who would understand, then check out tribesober.com and join our international community. We understand because we've been there. To beat those early cravings, Jean had a whole list of things to do when she felt a craving coming on. For example, she would eat an ice cream or an orange slice or take the dog out or drive to the store. Doing her grocery shopping in the evenings took some of the pressure out of her schedule the next day. And she started her unpickled blog, anonymously like Claire Pooley. And just like Claire, she got responses and realised that she was not alone in this. With the perspective of a whole decade of sobriety, Jean is able to look back and realise that for the first two years she was just white-knuckling it. During those early years, she stayed sober because she was ashamed of the possibility of relapse. That prevented her from healing and also stopped her experiencing the fullness of recovery, as she puts it. So Jean was on this journey alone for the first two years, and it was only when she discovered a sober community that her recovery really got started. We often get people joining Tribe Sober who've been sober for a while, but they feel isolated and miserable because they feel lonely and they don't realise that recovery is about so much more than not drinking. Jean went on a sober retreat and sat in a sharing circle for the first time at two years sober. And that's when the magic of recovery began. She cried constantly during that retreat and came through the other side. Many of us were afraid to get sober because we believe that sobriety would mean a life of deprivation. But as Jean says, the reality is that it's a life of abundance. And that's the joy of a sober community. You'll meet people further down the line who can confirm that that is indeed the case. We talked about the money that us ladies spend on beauty and anti-aging products, when the best thing of all we can do for our health and our beauty as we get older is to ditch the booze. Staying hydrated is so important for our skin, yet for every glass of wine we drink, we lose the equivalent of four glasses of water. Gina explained that recovery helped her to stop doing things that weren't serving her, which made me think about a discussion we had in one of our chat rooms recently. Many of us realised that we were drinking to make other people more interesting and had wasted far too much time hanging out with people who we didn't really connect with. I asked Jean to share some of her tips. She recommends that we find alternative ways to comfort ourselves, tell someone, decide that whatever happens, no, you will not drink, and of course, join a sobriety group. We talked about the magazine Ola Soba and how wonderful it is to be part of this modern recovery movement. So do take a look at Jean's blog, which is called Unpickled, and if you don't already listen to The Bubble Hour, then there are plenty of episodes to catch up with. 
You heard her reading that beautiful poem about recovery circles from her book, The Ember Ever There. That book's available on Amazon, and I'll put all the links in the show notes. Now it's time for me to open my phone, go into the Tribe Sober chat room, and grab the first member message that inspires me. You heard Gina explaining that while she was drinking, she was doing a lot of things that weren't really serving her, and during recovery, she's managed to drop them. So building on that theme, I've just picked a couple of messages about socialising. So from Kerry ann I've been reflecting and thinking about the people I used to socialise with and how I couldn't get through it without drinking, as there was no engagement, just people talking about themselves. The wine gave me the energy to engage with them. And then Sarah says, I'm spending a lot more time on my own now, and unapologetically, as it's really dawning on me how much time I wasted socialising, people-pleasing, due to alcoholic brain fog cycle. It all ties in with learning to value oneself more and demand higher standards, better use of time as well. I know the flip side of that after the project of quitting booze has tapered off can feel a little flat. Finding activities-based socialising is better, as that way, if the connection turns out to be shallow or not worthwhile, then at least you're still using your time effectively by doing something interesting. So thank you to Kerry ann and Sarah. Every week we have a PDF to give away. This week we've got one called 30 Signs You May Have a Problem with Alcohol. So just email Janet at tribesober.com if you'd like a copy. And don't forget that we've got a private Facebook group if you'd like to join that. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us and share the podcast. And we'd be so grateful if you'll leave us a review. And I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain. And we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards. And that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.